Welcome back to Microdigressions. This is Spencer Case. Today, we're going to be thinking about the relationship between beauty and ethics and whether the moral conduct of an artist can impact the artistic qualities of his or her work. Here to speak with me about that, I have Mary Beth Willard of Weber State University in Ogden, Utah. How are you doing, Mary Beth? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I've also got my wife, May, our, our resident non-philosopher. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. My dad got his uh, degree in, I believe, business at Weber State in, I think, 1992. No way, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if that makes it alma mater is like the school I went to. Is it at my alma grandmother? Or I don't know if there's a word for that. Yeah, alma mater. Oh, goodness. Don't, my Latin's not good enough to come up with something on the fly, right? Your uh, honored grandmother. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, okay. Very cool. So, uh, and it's, it's Mary Beth, even though there isn't a hyphen in her name, although there is one on Facebook. Let's be clear. Yes, uh, that's that's due to Facebook's algorithm back in 2007, clipping my name to Mary because it couldn't handle the space. And I put the dash in to keep people from calling me Mary because my university email address at the time also said Mary Willard. And it kind of drove me crazy. But then once your name has a hyphen on Facebook, apparently it's there forever. So I will have a hyphen in the metaverse and, you know, when we colonize Mars and everything like that. So future. Yeah. Future philosophers will be wondering whether. Mary Beth and Mary Beth are two distinct people who did related work. It'll just be or... like William Shakespeare. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So I guess I will open with this question for you and I'll get May's take on it. Yeah. So your book, Why It's Okay to Enjoy the Art of Immoral Artists. You begin by mentioning that human beings are aesthetic animals. So Aristotle says humans are political animals and you say we're aesthetic animals. And I was hoping you could elaborate on that, what you mean by that. Sure. What I mean by that, and granted, obviously the phrase in the book is sort of just playing around with like Aristotle's formulation, right? Um, I obviously don't give an argument for the claim, but uh, that said, the reason I think that human beings are aesthetic animals is that we seem to care very much about beauty and making our lives beautiful. And we do so through art and the way or the reason rather that I harp on this a little bit in the book is that when we tend to think about like what to do about the problem of immoral artists, should I give up the artists I've been listening to because they've been accused of something, we tend to treat aesthetic uh, concerns, right? the kinds of things that we like in terms of art or the kinds of things that we find beautiful as secondary, right? As that we could, we could get by without them. They're not the necessities of life. But then when I think about how we actually spend our time, right, whether we're going dancing or whether we're playing music or uh, badly doing watercolor or uh, listening to um, comedy shows, that actually consumes a lot of our time and a lot of our attention. And it seems unique to me in the way that Aristotle might say that you know, a man is a political animal or Shinsu, the Chinese philosopher might say that man is the maker of distinctions that actually we spend a lot of time on art for, <laughs> for an animal that doesn't really need it. And I find that really fascinating. 
May has uh, been working really hard at painting and drawing. And uh, why don't you say a little bit about that and what you think the significance of beauty is? Um, yes, I mean, I am working on this oil painting more like um, mimic of the 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 girl, girl with the pearl, pearl earlier. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I was talking to my friends and other of my co-workers. We were all working on this one. And we were just thinking, like, when we see this picture, it just gives you this sense of gentleness. And it's very um, meek. And it's um, it's give a sense of peace as well. So I think, and with the color and the portion of the painting, and you see if you put in squares, like if you actually put it in grid, you can see it's almost every part of it. It's, it fits each little square perfectly. And it's fascinating that the artist can capture that and put it in in the oil painting. And so for people to see, and I just think this, because of that, we can, today, we are here, we can just, like, admire this painting and see it's so beautiful and admire also the talent of the artist. Things are almost like a, a legacy of the person comes down and people, even today, they uh, study those paintings and try to figure out what materials a person the artist used and what kind of paint and pigment they use so it's just very interesting yeah i think it's true that we turn our attention to beauty almost as soon as our immediate survival needs are taken care of right and yeah i think that's right i yeah. mean it's it's not just you know well off you know people in the 21st century that care about art this starts i i mean if we go and look at archaeology, right? As soon as people have the basics of food and shelter sorted out, the next question seems to be, how can I make this elegant? How can I make this pretty? How can I decorate this thing, right? If you consider adornment as part of aesthetics, which I do. But I, I think that one of the things that we appreciate aesthetically, especially in painting, as May so beautifully put it, that it's not just that we look at the beautiful girl in the picture or uh, admire the light and the tone, but once you start doing it, you start appreciating the craft of it, that the original painting is you know, very carefully constructed, that it's mathematical in a way, and that that's something you can only see if you actually do it, right? Or if you're extremely well-educated about how painting works. I'm not a great painter, and I haven't even uh, attempted you know, an oil painting <laughs> at all. So when I look at a painting, I mostly, I can see the color and I can see the form but you have a different appreciation of it if you actually practice the art too. There's some research that uh, dancers especially will get something different out of a dance performance than uh, a person who doesn't dance because the person who does dance will, they've done MRI studies or however they do it, but they can tell that like areas of the brain that pattern movement uh, light up when you know what the person is doing. And it's uh, a very different kind of experience to have like an inkling, an idea of what it would be like to actually uh, perform that action, which I find really fascinating. So when we think about aesthetics, we immediately think about art, but it's actually so much broader than that. Like what font we read, what font we write in determines how easy it is to read. And we can definitely tell the difference between a really gauche, ugly font and a beautiful font. And like the even design of our cups and 
spoons and ordinary objects, we pay attention to how these things look. They're not purely functional. No, that's right. I mean, if you think of any object, right, something like your cell phone, right, which could be thought of just as utilitarian, how much money Apple spends, for example, on making sure the design looks sleek or even paying attention to the packaging. I remember getting my first, uh, I got an iPod shuffle way, way back when. And being amazed at the packaging just held the product like so. And it's like, it's cardboard. I'm not going to do anything with the packaging later. And I don't really care, except that it's beautiful. But yeah, it goes much beyond art. And, you know, there's there's questions sometimes like, you know, with fonts, functionality matters, right? Readability matters. But things like formatting the margins of your paper so it looks beautiful or, you know, playing around with LaTeX like I did in grad school because everybody was sort of obsessed with making things into their own PDFs <laughs> at the time. Uh, having you know, everything turned properly and you know beautifully spaced is a pleasure when you read it, and it affects you know your attitude towards what you're reading. I think, yeah. So it's it's not just things that we might consider formal arts either. Um, in the book, I construe art very very broadly. It includes comedy, it includes pop songs, it includes almost anything. But to the larger question about aesthetics, there's actually been some movement in this area. If you look at most of the work that's done in aesthetics, like 97% of it is philosophy of art, but there's this 3% that's trying to understand aesthetic value, aesthetic reasons, aesthetic motivations. And it's become a, a newer subfield of a subfield, uh, investigating these questions kind of absent art itself or absent, especially the fine arts. I want to ask May now the next question before I turn it back to you. And that is, what do you think is the relationship between beauty and moral goodness? Beauty and moral goodness. I think one thing that when artists, they capture something, their intention, a lot of times I think it's the intention of capture something is beautiful. I think with that kind of intention, it's good. Um, so when someone who has the intention to... Uh, create something beautiful or in their own eyes or in their own thoughts that they think is beautiful. I think morally, I think for them, it's probably this is something I think is good. But whether people like the audience or whoever is watching that or reading or listening to it, they may have a different kind of moral standard, right? So I don't think there's like you can say, beauty has to relate to absolute moral um, standards because everybody may have different ones. And their idea of reflecting what beauty is can be very different too. So I think it's probably hard to say beauty uh, has to reflect uh, moral standards. Do you have any comments on that, Mary Beth? I think the question of some, that of whether something is beautiful versus ethical are separate questions. So I think you can separate the aesthetic from the ethical, but that often they intertwine in interesting ways and amplify or detract from each other. So I have a very boring, moderate position, which can be summed up by kind of just saying it depends. So it's not the case that something beautiful is ethical because it's beautiful, but it's also not the case that something ethical is beautiful just in virtue of being ethical, right? I'm not a romantic. Truth is beauty, beauty, truth. That is all you need to know. No, uh, nothing, nothing like that. 
But I think the question is actually really complicated because certain things seem to be made better by being, say, morally uplifting, right? Maybe a piece of music that makes you feel good in like an ethical sense, right? Maybe uh, Handel's Messiah, let's say. And you, you listen to that and you're moved in a certain way. You could describe that, I think, in ethical terms and in aesthetic terms. But if we're being strict uh, philosophers, I think they, the, the two do come apart. You can have something that's beautiful and unethical or ethical and ugly. And I think that's where I stand on most of it. So it seems like we do think there's a relationship between goodness and beauty. And you can see that just by looking at the way villains are often portrayed. Uh, they often look repulsive. We'll take, for instance, Emperor Palpatine off of Star Wars or, you know, the orcs in Lord of the Rings. We think there's something fitting about evil being ugly and good being beautiful. The novel, a picture of, uh, wait, a portrait of Dorian Gray? The, port- uh, the picture of Dorian picture, Gray. The picture, picture of Dorian Gray. Yeah. picture of Dorian Gray. Oscar Wilde, that novel really works by showing the peculiarity of detaching beauty and goodness and sort of inverting the the relationship. And so I'm inclined to think there's a pretty strong relationship. Um, Maybe they are separate forms of uh, evaluation. I tend to see moral evaluation everywhere. (laughs) Professional hazard, I'm sure. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Well, well, think about it, though, right? I could push back on the villain trope a bit because you can think of things like Emperor Palpatine, right? Very pr- portrayed as very ugly. Pretty much every children's fairy tale is, you know, the, the evil witch is ugly. But there's also a portrayal of villains, especially female villains, as kind of having a very harsh beauty, right? Yeah, you know, the, the evil empress might, might be very, very beautiful in kind of... Uh, you know, thin and harsh sort of way. And the idea that beauty is only skin deep. We have cultural tropes that push back on the idea that surface beauty is a reliable guide to ethics. But I think you're absolutely right about the picture of Dorian Gray um, as sort of uh, you know late romantic era work, I think in some ways you could say, right? The, the premise of the, the book, right, is that everything that Dorian Gray does that would ordinarily show up on his face, right? Like all the crimes and mischief that he's getting up to would normally show up as etched in lines on his face or in his gait or, you know, perhaps even diseases, depending on exactly what he's getting up to. Um, But it all goes to his portrait instead. So the portrait doesn't look anything like him while he stays eternally youthful and handsome. And the whole conceit of the book only works if you buy into the premise that, yeah, normally an immoral, dissolute life makes you ugly, right? And, you know, I remember the, the end of the book where, you know, he attacks the portrait and then all of the ugliness in the portrait basically comes back to him and his servants can only identify him by his rings on his hands. They're like, who is this ugly old man who's, you know, torn up the picture upstairs and they realize that it, it's him after all. So I think there is this connection, but you could also ask, like, sure, we see this trope in art, right? Beauty is good. Evil is ugly. This is all children's movies, right? All, all children's villains. But movies and art are visual medium. You have to depict it somehow, right? You don't have the ability to paint a moral property onto somebody or show their soul in uh, a painting. So what do you do? You make their eyes a little cruel. You show that it's somehow represented physically. 
I think that's really interesting. But I worry that asserting the connection to between them might be just like, look, we're, you know, not that complicated animals. And we like our stories pretty simple. And, you know, good guys are very handsome with the white hats and bad guys are very ugly with the black hats. And we don't actually have to uh, think too hard about it. Right. Very simple, quick symbolism. I think it's probably a little bit more complicated. I think there's definitely the pull, right? Something beautiful is good. I mean, we there are studies on this, right? Beautiful people are thought to be better people. They they do better at jobs. They do better in court cases. But I don't know if that's right. Thoughts, me? Yeah, I I was just kind of thinking about what Mary was saying, uh, especially when it comes to the female violence, because in Chinese, like uh, literature and Chinese stories, a lot of times they portray the Chinese. The beautiful women, they call them the the beauty becomes the like cause the damage, especially in the Asian stories. Like they, there are so many of them, and they portray them as very beautiful women, and because of that, they become the distraction of the leaders or emperor or whoever, and then becomes this like they became the ones that cause a country falling apart. I was thinking of that. I couldn't think of a specific examples and I didn't want to embarrass myself. But yeah, the Chinese trope of like the dangerously beautiful woman who brings ruin to the kingdom because she distracts the king from his duties is a thing, right? It's like she comes in and it's like, and then there's the whole, uh, the whole world falls apart because of her dangerous, scary beauty. Yeah. So it's not always the case that beauty is good, but I think there's a presumption in its favor when, when it's depicted. Like if I, if, I was talking with students, we were reading, it doesn't really matter. We were reading a play and thinking about how to convey something quickly, right? And if you want to convey that somebody is good in an American film, there's a certain wholesome kind of look that they're going to have. And that's going to be, and that's mostly a matter of like narrative expediency. Like I put this person, you know, in a certain dress, in a certain background, and you know, you know, what class they are, how much money they have, whether they're educated or not, and whether they're the hero of the story, right? you know, film or, or television is a really visual language. And that has to be done quickly, you know, because your audience is already making assumptions. And so I think there's something to that with respect to how we depict beauty, but whether it actually matches onto ethics is I think a, a much harder question. Okay. You two, I want to push back on what you're both saying. <laughs> no, you said, something, you said something early on that I, I thought was revealing is you, you mentioned surface beauty, that surface beauty comes apart from moral goodness. And that's certainly true. But that's not all the beauty that there is, right? And even in, in like a picture of Dorian Gray, there's this idea that the surface beauty is supposed to be like a reflection of the inner beauty in some way. And the people who are, I don't know, attractive temptresses or, you know, when the devil is portrayed as a, as a very handsome man or something like this, it's just a more sophisticated kind of ugliness. It's, it's you have to look closer to see the hideousness of it. And so I, I don't think that those sorts of examples really show the independence of, from beauty and morality that, that you maybe think it does. Okay, but <laughs> the funny thing is when you were speaking is I was saying, look, you're just 
providing more fodder for me here, Spencer, because you're saying the devil could be portrayed as very ugly or as very beautiful, yet nevertheless, he's still perceived as, you know, a tempter or a deceiver or bad. So doesn't that show the independence of the external depiction? Uh, maybe here's here's one thing I, I was also thinking when you were saying is that we might say that if we say beauty is only skin deep, right? And the idea that it's not reflective of the inner beauty or the inner moral qualities, you do see start to see those run together, right? The conflation that like having a beautiful soul is something like having an ethical soul. But now I'm, I'm afraid I'm losing the thread a little bit because I want to say that you know, depictions of beauty or you know what we find beautiful doesn't map perfectly onto what's ethical. And I think you're agreeing with me, but that I th- I'm worried that we're agreeing only because we really don't go around depicting beautiful souls, right? When we uh, paint a picture of somebody to try to show them as having a good soul, we probably do make them, if not beautiful, at least look kind, right? I mean, part of the issue here is we don't have a practice of depicting inner beauty, except by uh, analogy with external beauty. Okay. It's plausible that for the most evil people, they have to be good in some respect. There has to be something that admirable about them in one respect for them to be maximally evil. Right. Sure. You, you can't have an incompetent villain, right? Nice. Uh, you know, if you, if, if you're, if villains are incompetent, you don't worry about them. Right. Yeah. So maybe the same is true with beauty that being beautiful in one respect is instrumental for the maximal kind of ugliness, the deepest, most profound kind of ugliness involves a component of beauty, just as the most extreme form of villainy has an element of of virtue in it. (laughs) I love it. And I have no idea what to say. I I think that's really, really interesting. Um, Let me think. I'm not sure. I understand what the second part means, right? For somebody who's a complete villain needs to have uh, some virtue of something, rather, you know, they have to be at least competent, right? Or maybe they have to be exceptionally clever. That's something we often see with villains. Uh, you know, a very, I don't know why I think of James Bond villains when I think of this, right? Because they're all over the top caricatures, right? But they're all usually portrayed as extremely smart, but you know, lacking in some other virtue. They're ruthless or they're, uh, you know, monomaniacal or something like that. But thinking about it the other way, where beauty requires ugliness in some way or conceals hidden ugliness gosh i don't know what to say about that i'm thinking of something that i read once about uh the uncanny valley in depictions of human faces especially by cgi not exclusively but mostly right so the uncanny valley is when something looks almost human but not quite in the right way i think the original final fantasy movie from about 15 years maybe 20 years ago now. Actually, I think it gets there sometimes where it's almost human, but it's not quite. And we find it actually more repulsive because of how close it is to the ideal. Uh, the psychological theory behind this is apparently that human beings for you know well-trod evolutionary reasons don't like corpses. And corpses are really close to being alive, but not quite. So things that like fall into that almost human, but not quite are really creepy, which is why, you know, Robots that are almost human are more creepy than robots that are like cute with smiley faces. So maybe there's something there, right? The idea that approaching beauty, but just missing it is actually more evil than being far apart from it. So that's how I can kind of make sense of maybe 
Uh, what you're saying here, that sounded mean. I don't mean not that you weren't making sense. I mean that I'm trying to parse it. <laughs> uh, the other thing that might be interesting about this, um, just for thinking about beauty, is that often people who are thought to be very beautiful aren't perfectly symmetrical. In fact, you can make faces look really weird if they're perfectly symmetrical because nobody's face is their, you know, muscle patterns and stuff differ on opposite sides of your face. So if you took the most beautiful person in the world and split their face down the middle in a photograph and then mirrored it, it would look weird. It would look off-putting in a way that you might not expect, right? Like if one side's perfect, shouldn't two sides being perfect be better? And that's not actually it. So there's a sense where, at least with human faces, right, that we don't want perfect symmetry. We want something a little bit asymmetrical, you know, an eye that's, you know, curved a slightly different way or a mole on one cheek or another, obviously. Um, and uh, <laughs> um, that perfect symmetry we find a little bit weird. Okay, May, you want to disagree with me about something? Yes. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> so, so philosophy is the key to a happy marriage. <laughs> so when you were saying like the second part of uh, what you were saying, like even the most evil person has some sort of um, like something that people should be like admire or something like that. So mm-hmm. I disagree with that part uh, because like, let's say the devil, he is like 100% evil, right? And then you say, oh, yes, certainly he is competent of like tricking people, like make people like all those. But that cleverness that he has is to trick people. That's like with a bad intention, with an evil intention. So I do not see how we can see that as part of being competent, being clever. So no. Yeah, so, I disagree with so, that. So yeah, so you'd want to say that cleverness just wouldn't be a good making feature in the the case of the devil, where it's combined with these other bad qualities. I guess that that could be one way to think of it. I've thought about it that way, but I also think you said that the devil is one hundred percent evil. I tend to think the devil is maximally evil. So if you can add a little bit of goodness to get more overall evil, the devil would be that way. So there's an interesting thing here uh, about what is required for somebody to be admirable. And this is a little further afield than I normally go, but uh, Alfred Archer and Ben Matheson have written on what it means for something to be a fitting target of admiration, um, specifically on the case of immoral art and artists, and thinking that, you know, can I admire somebody for one trait without admiring them as a person, right? And the the weirdness, I think, in the moral psychology of admiration is that it does tend to be toward the person, not just the the deed that they did, right? So when you say that you admire a sports star, for example, it's not just that you admire their prowess on the football field or the basketball court. It's that you admire them as a person. And that's actually why sometimes we you know take them as role models just because they're good at sports or or, or something like that. And so uh, what I'm wondering here, to May's point about the devil, is that I might say that the devil, uh, I like your formulation here of maximally evil, to be the most evil that you can possibly be requires being clever, being competent, maybe maybe being intelligent in a certain way. Certainly, like, I, I mean, I think maybe we're all spoiled by Milton, right? You have this very, you know, you know, kind of beautiful story of what it was like to be a fallen angel and or, you know, popular pictures of the devil, you know, always shows up as like a good looking guy in more recent stuff who is charming and you know, sometimes oozing with sex appeal. 
but is very, very bad in some way, right? Um, but whatever you might say about, you know, the devil is being maximally evil, you might say that I could separate saying that he has to have some good making qualities from the claim that he should be admirable as a result. You know, you don't admire the devil for being maximally evil, but you can recognize that the devil is intelligent or clever or devious or, you know, charming, right? So you might say not admirable, but has these maximally good making qualities. And you wouldn't even want to say that his cleverness is admirable or his patience is admirable. You wouldn't want to say that even. I don't think so. You'd have to be really careful about it, right? Because the idea is that admiration spreads, right? If I say I admire, um, if I say I admire Spencer's podcast, right? Uh, people will take that as admiring Spencer more generally. And it, it admiration it spreads. It's kind of, it just bleeds into everything else. So yeah, admires the wrong, the wrong attitude there. If that's the, if that's the right analysis. See, well, we haven't talked about what is immoral art yet, but that's such a great segue into your topic of immoral artists. I don't know. How, how would you like to proceed? Oh, why don't we start with immoral art? We could start with the, uh, the video that you sent me yesterday, which is kind of funny because it's like, here, let's set up the podcast. Oh, by the way, and, and your email is great. It's like, we could talk about this unless you don't want to watch it, right? <laughs> the, uh, the, the song that you sent which I thought was I thought was great because of course what I immediately did was click on it. I did put on headphones just because the kids were around. <laughs> but, but I'm glad I did because I, I don't want to have to explain that to my 8-year-old. Um, <laughs> but I should say So why don't, why don't you tell them a, a little bit about uh the the song that you sent um because I think you know more about the blues than I do. Yeah, I'm interested in um blues and jazz and the sort of American roots music and blues is interesting in that a, a lot of the early stuff, it was like synchronized beats that would help people or like it had steady beats that would help people with manual labor. And that got phased out in the 19th century, except for where? Oh, prison chain gangs, right? And so that carried it through. And so there's this element of blues that is criminal. And a lot of blues artists were, were criminals and it comes through in the music pretty clearly. So I gave an example of that. And it was this one by an artist called Louisiana Red. And the, the name of the song, it was Sweet Blood Call. And I was just listening to some random blues playlist on Spotify one night laying down. And I heard this one. And I just set up and was like, what in the tarnation am I listening to? And it, oh my gosh, you were so Idaho. Tarnation. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am. My parents listen to this podcast. <laughs> I Spencer's mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, it's a very well-regarded blues song among people who are interested in blues. And I went back, I went to the YouTube video and, and looked at the comments to see what people were saying. People were like, wow, this is amazing. Okay, so it's a song that is describing a really horrendous domestic abuse. Like the, the nar narrative voice is saying it begins, he begins with the lyric. I find it hard to miss you with my pistol in your mouth. And it begins. That I can't miss you baby with my pistol in my mouth it, with your, my pistol in your mouth. Right. Something like that. Uh, yeah. Cause I listened to it and then I pulled the lyric sheet because I wanted to like, 
I seriously studied this thing yesterday <laughs> in preparation for this because I had possibly a very similar reaction minus the tarnations in, uh, in listening to this. Um, because of course, you know, I, I clicked on the YouTube video and I, I got your email quite early and I had to be up early. So it was like five in the morning and I'm on my phone and I, I'm like, okay, I'll just, and I'm like, oh, okay. But then I started listening to it and I can see why people love it. The vocals are absolutely incredible. The hook, right? Just the opening line immediately draws you in, right? Because it's, you know, I can't miss you, baby. You know, the sounds like any kind of other like crooning love song, right? It's a, and then the next phrase, right? With my pistol in your mouth and you're like, oh, oh. Also, the whole song is second person, right? So the singer is embodying the persona of this domestic abuser, right? And as uh, the the second verse get, gets worse, right? Where she's the, the person who is um, being abused, presumably female, is, uh, you know, eyes are rolling back in her head and he's mocking her, right? Oh, your eyes are rolling back. I can tell you're coming around. You're going to want to stay here. And if, if you try to run away, I'll hunt you down, right? Uh, the, there, there's so many layers to this, but you're being directly addressed as the audience, right? As the audience listening to this, it's directed at you, right? So the vocals are creepy. The song is creepy, but it's also very, very beautiful. So I'm left with this thinking like, wow, that's an incredible song. And I have no idea really quite, like it's unsettling in a way that I find actually very pleasant, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. So here's my question for you. Am I allowed to ask questions for you? You're the interviewer. Um, I have tenure. I can ask you questions. This is uh, so my question program. is, you think this the is song a, is immoral? This is a philosophy podcast. There will be no questions here. There will be no questions. Be no, no questions. I, uh, my first thought too, listening to it, uh, I was saying, uh, do you think it's immoral? Do you think the song itself is immoral? And if so, why? Okay, good. Yeah. I admit, I admit, I'm intrigued by the song. I mean, I went back and listened to it again, even after I was shocked hearing it the first time. I do want to say, I think that's an example of immoral art. I think it's obscene. Okay. And I think you say the audience is being addressed, but I think it's natural for us to relate to the narrative voice, relate to the person who is speaking. And imagine that you're the one speaking. And it feels to me like an invitation to sympathize with this perspective because it's presented in such um, a non-judgmental way. And there's nothing in the song at all to take the edge off of it. There's no way to interpret this as metaphor. It's nope. just, it's just sheer, a sheer invitation to empathize. And I even think sympathize with the worst kind of domestic abuser. And I don't think it's good for me to develop that habit of mind. I mean, right. yeah, I guess I guess that's roughly why I think it's wrong. But that sounds like that sounds like I think it's wrong only because it might lead me to do bad actions later or something. No, no, no. I mean, I think so. There's a lot. Interestingly, what's written about this in the aesthetics literature always approaches it from a very bizarre way that only a philosopher could love. That you say. Uh, you know, this work is unethical. How should that affect how we think about it aesthetically? Right. But there's not comparatively quite as much, although James Harold has a, a newish book uh, about this. It's called Dangerous Art that takes up the question of like what makes the art immoral in the first place. 
And I think, as you've described it, that would be, if I were to give an argument that the song is immoral, that that's the problem with it, right? Um, because in most cases, merely depicting something evil isn't sufficient to mean that the art itself is unethical. Usually what we're looking for is something like the claim that it's endorsing something unethical, right? And so this is this is why, uh, you know, I preface this by saying, I don't know all that much about the blues and I don't know who I'm supposed to be when I listen to the song. Am I supposed to imagine myself as the singer, right? And if I am, that's going to lead me to like try to identify with this, you know, very horrible domestic abuser. And you might think that even if, you know, it doesn't lead to people going around and being domestic abusers, right? And I'm a child of like the 90s. So I you know, tend to regard all things that like violent video games and explicit rap music are all going to make us into bad people. I regard all such arguments with great suspicion. But you might still say that nevertheless, endorsing a positive attitude towards a bad thing is unethical, right? You're supposed to have uh, if you think your attitudes are supposed to line up with what's ethical and unethical, like you should be approving of good things and disapproving of bad things. And here is a song written to get you to uh, endorse the idea that this guy is, and this is where I struggle with it. Is he justified? Is this supposed to be admirable? And I think that's maybe why I went to the the second reading almost immediately, which is like, I'm the target here, right? This, this song has meant me... me uh, supposed to make me feel fear or feel uh, creepy or scared or something like that. And I think it works that way. Right. And I'm not, I'm not sure though. I'm, I will say that I don't have a ton of experience with the blues, but one of the cases where I did was uh, like a live local music concert back when I was living in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And I was sitting there with my husband and we're listening to this, you know, amateur blues artist who frankly wasn't all that great. But every song he sang was basically about how much he hated his ex-wife. And <laughs> at some point, I just heard, I'm like, why are we even still here? Like, there are other things to do at this outdoor festival. We could go and, you know, uh, drink beer and grab a pretzel and not listen to this guy's, you know, really bad marital therapy at this point. And so, so to that extent, I could see, like, yeah, maybe you are supposed to identify with the perspective of the singer. But I think that at a minimum, you know, when we're, judging whether a work of art in depicting something is doing something immoral. Like we have to figure out what the attitude it's taking towards it. And I'm not really sure with that song. Um, if there's a tradition in blues, as you mentioned with its history of adopting the perspective of the singer, right. And endorsing it, you might say that, you know, it's expressing an unethical attitude. I don't know though, how, like how I'm supposed to hear it. Right. So this is a, an area where I think genre does a lot and I don't know, uh, enough about the genre. Um, I will say that just listening to it, I found it extremely beautiful and creepy at the same time. And I thought that that intersection was interesting because there's something kind of, again, this goes back to our earlier discussion, right? That beautiful sounding things are thought to be good, right? I think my favorite example of this is uh, uh, Every Breath You Take by The Police, uh, which is, uh, you know, very pretty and soft, and it sounds, you know, happy or and like gentle. And if you listen to the lyrics, right, this is a song about, you know, best case scenario, romantic obsession, worst case scenario, crazy stalker, right? But everybody thinks of it as a love song, right? Uh, as, you know, and this is something we talk about, you know, 
in class when we're talking about romantic love, it's like obsession isn't love. And like, this is a really important thing to sort out for you young people on the dating market, right? <laughs> like, uh, but so there is this, um, anyhow, my, my point is that, you know, when something sounds really beautiful, right, we might be more inclined to make allowances for the ethics of it. Like, oh, that, that song can't be really about that. But the, I think the, the kind of brilliance of Sweet Blood Call is that it resists any sort of metaphorical thing. It's like, he's not really, you know, talking about the state or something like that. The closest I can get, like, if it is a metaphor and the pistol standing for something else, it just made the whole song worse, right? Like, it's like, it just went from, oh, okay, what kind of domestic abuse are we talking about, right? Um, and so it's interesting to think that maybe the beauty of the song makes it worse in some ways, right? Because if you do get caught up in thinking of it, I can't imagine performing it either. That would be a really weird thing to perform. You know, I like to sing along to music, but I'm not singing along to that one. And like, and it's in my range. Like I could probably do a pretty good job. I'm not going to sing it. Uh, right. You should use it as a lead into the episode. <laughs> there are copyright reasons. I can't do that. I, can't do that. I know. I know. Also probably for good moral sense reasons. <laughs> yeah. And also for Prudential, I want more listeners, not fewer reasons. <laughs> May, do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, Did you make her listen to the song? I, I, you played that. No, I think I just told you about it. But just listening to you reading the first two, like the first two uh, lines, the first reaction I had, like emotional reaction was fear. Like I wasn't seeing myself as like the the singer or the, the person being abused, but as a third person. Just seeing, like, picturing this as what's going on is just, it, it's um, cause of the, me feel the, the being scared, basically. So normally when I listen to songs, and even Chinese songs, not as many because um, they have to go through uh, the approval process. So certain songs they would not approve to be online or being produced. So. But there were, for a while, there were songs like uh, had words that uh, or, or lines was, were not very kind. So they took that off. And they also, with the artists, I think later on, they were basically, they were banned. Uh, so, but sounds like this, I normally, if I listen to them, and if somehow it generates a, a fear uh, in my heart, I would just stop listening to it because I think something that like this, they they do have the power of having an impact on you or how you see things. Certainly some, some things that you see something bad is happening around the world, but I don't want to gravitate to certain things that make me feel bad or depressed or scared when there are so many other things that... Uh, make me feel happy and joyful <laughs> like you're saying like this this uh, this guy was saying all about his how he disliked his ex-wife like there are better things we can do so better better ways to spend the time exactly exactly and you can think of you know if you think of your aesthetic attention as a resource it's like, do i really want to spend my time on this um and for me, interestingly, it was just like, I was so intrigued by the, the weirdness of the contradiction of the song, right? The very beautiful vocal line contrasted with the complete ugliness of the lyrics that for me, that was 
pleasurable. And also then it became a puzzle. I had to figure out what, why the song worked and what made it tick. And then I had to go and look at the lyrics and I'm going to say professional hazard, but really it's just part of my, how my brain works is that I'm like, Oh, there's a puzzle here. I've got to try to take it apart and, and see what happens. But I think that that's also the idea that I don't actually need to be wasting my time on that is a reaction I completely understand because for me, it, it shows up with horror movies, which I'm not good with. Um, I can deal with suspense, but at some point it's like, I'm just watching people get killed in various ways. And I don't find this entertaining. I'm not a horror film fan at all. Like pretty much for the reasons that you articulate, like I could be doing literally anything else with my time that would be a better use. So I was wondering whether the way to evaluate something like this is whether, should it, should it be, is there one interpretation, a dominant interpretation that is ethically problematic or is it that there are no morally acceptable ways of interpreting it or understanding it? And I, this isn't based on any deep knowledge of the blues I have. I just sort of think that the default is to sympathize with the narrative voice. Like if you're listening to something, something angry, yeah, I, I, don't, maybe. I don't feel like I'm being cussed out. I imagine saying that to the person who's angered me, you know, I guess that that's how I, how I think of it. Huh, I don't know. Um, so uh, while, while I was thinking of this, I was trying to think of songs and you know, going through my, uh, like a list of pop songs in my head, right? And maybe this is because artists are often male, right? Sometimes, you know, they're, they're singing about love, you know, to a chorus of screaming fangirls. The fangirls aren't imagining them to be him, right? They're imagining them to be the target. But uh, what actually came to mind was the song, uh, You're So Vain, You Probably Think This Song Is About You, which only works, right, if you are listening to it and wondering whether you're the target, right? Or wondering who the target is. It doesn't really work from a first personal perspective. So I might push back on that a little bit, but I think I would probably agree that in general, there's an implication that like we're supposed to find the narrator sympathetic, right? Um, which is what makes uh, every breath you take so creepy in some ways, right? Or, you know, when, oh gosh, now I'm going to be like, this is just embarrassing, the, the amount of pop songs, right? Uh, that we could possibly use as examples. But uh, I'm thinking, I don't know why Avril Lavigne's Skater Boy popped into my head, but like when she sings the song about, <laughs> I know, right? Like of all the awful pop songs in the past 20 years. This, this um, is why we bring be, on an, uh, an aesthetics expert to hear about Avril. Yeah, this is why you bring an aesthetic. I, I bring value to your podcast, Spencer. Um, but what I was thinking, like when, when you listen to that song and, you know, assuming your ears aren't bleeding after uh, the, the <laughs> afterwards, you might think that, like you're not getting the perspective of like the uh, girl, right? Who doesn't didn't like the skater boy, <laughs> you know? Like you get you get the singer's perspective, right? But you're not like, oh, gee, I wonder what the, you know, why the girl who was you know into ballet didn't really like the skater boy, and maybe like she was right, and she went off to Harvard, and there he is playing like rock shows in Portland. Who cares, right? <laughs> you don't uh, you don't think of that. So I think there is a, a sense where you're supposed to sympathize with like. Yeah, you know, you're supposed to be on, you know, Avril Lavigne's side or their her persona, at least in the song, right, of what you're seeing. So when you apply that to something like, now I'm blanking on the title of the thing that you sent me, Sweet Blood Roll. Sweet yeah. Blood Call. Sweet Blood Call. I couldn't remember the last word. Sweet Blood Call. Um, when I think of when I think of that, right, if I say, okay, okay, in general, there's a presumption that you take the side of the the narrative voice, right? then that's really creepy. But I don't know if that universally holds with songs. Um, and this is, I mean, there's, there's too many boy bands who are singing to girls, right? And this is, 
I mean, you could be the boy band singing to girls, but that's a, uh, <laughs> that's uh, I think maybe not the, the same experience um, that I would have had listening to pop. So I was thinking this about the song, sweet blood call. Suppose we learned this fact, suppose it turned out that Louisiana red when he performed this at concerts, he would always say, I'm doing this to, you know, raise awareness of domestic abuse. And I donate mm-hmm. 10% of all of my shows to domestic violence shelters for women or something. Would that change the way we saw the song? Would, would, would that force us mm-hmm. to interpret it in a more humane sort of light? Oh, that's interesting. That's a really good question, actually. Okay, so given that there's an ambiguity in who you think you're supposed to be, at least I think there's an ambiguity. Are you supposed to be, you know, a third person, like watching this scene play out? Are you supposed to be the victim in this case? Or are you supposed to be uh, sympathizing with the narrator? I think that that would potentially resolve the ambiguity, right? If, if he were to say, I'm doing this because of, you know, well-known problems in the, the South with uh, domestic violence and the proceeds from you know, this concert are going to a domestic violence shelter. I think that would lend credence to the idea that you're supposed to be taking the perspective of either a third person, a third, uh, a third personal standpoint on the song, right? You're somebody watching this horrible scene go down or a second personal standpoint because of the, the, the way um, the song uses the term you, right? He's not singing about what happened. Um, yeah. And I think, I think that's really interesting because it does show that, I mean, in interpreting or thinking through rather how we should interpret a song or a work of art is complicated, right? And it's not just as easy as saying like, oh, the artist's intentions are X, Y, Z. So therefore the song means X, Y, Z, right? Artists can have intentions and they can fail at uh, carrying out those intentions. They can uh, mean well and have something land badly, right? Or they can mean badly and people take it the other way, but it's still something to consider, right? So you might say, Clearly, whatever he's doing in this song, he's, his intentions in the real world uh, show that he's not endorsing that as a person, right? And that might lead us to think that he's probably not singing a song that would make you want to endorse that. So we must be forced to be thinking of this in a different perspective, right? Whether it's irony or third personal or second personal or something like that. I think that would be completely reasonable. To take another example, this is a true story. This yeah. is going the other way. There is a, a blues artist named Pat Hare who wrote a song called I'm Gonna Murder My Baby that isn't quite as appalling as Sweet Blood Call because, you know, we say things like, I'm going to kill that person, you know, and, and we don't mean it. So, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have to take that literally. But guess what he did? Like a few years later, he actually yeah. murdered his baby. So and shot a cop who went to investigate, spent the rest of his life in prison. So it seems like this is evidence that extrinsic facts about artists can sometimes influence what we would want to say about the art itself. Sure. Sure. I think, I think that's fair. Right. Um, in, in the book, I don't, I, in the first chapter, I take up the idea that there's basically two easy answers to the question. You should only evaluate art by, you know, the morality of the artist, or you should never do so. Right. And unsurprisingly, because the book doesn't end after the first chapter, I argue that neither of those are, uh, sufficient. And I think uh, facts extrinsic to the work do influence how how we interpret the work. And I'd say in some cases, they probably should, right? So you might think that uh, 
there's a certain way that the extreme facts are always going to bear, right? Like knowing that the person who's saying, I'm going to murder you, baby, actually killed his uh, lover and then shot a cop, like makes the song unethical or makes it worse. But one thing that I was thinking about cases like this is that it also adds kind of like a realism to it, right? Like this guy really knows what it's like, right? That they're really singing, you know, from the ghetto or from the, you know, poor impoverished area that, you know, leads to these drug cartels, or, you know, he's really, he really understands the blues, right? Like what better guy to sing about the rage that leads you to murder somebody than somebody who actually did it. Right. So there's sort of a, a weird grittiness to the realism that I think, uh, for, I mean, I don't find it appealing, but I could see how people could right? like, Oh, this isn't just a guy that's like, is faking it or playing a character. He's, you know, he's got the, the real experience of it. It's not just a bad guy persona. It's a, uh, flirting with being a bad guy or something like that. But yeah, um, to, the, to the broader point, I think absolutely that uh, the behavior of the artists do influence how we interpret their work. And I think it's really hard always to say how and why. And that's something I'm actually really interested in in the book. I write about comedy specifically and how um, the comedian's persona affects like, basically whether we find their jokes funny. But the more I think about it, the more I'm not sure uh, exactly how this how it works, right? So it's not like you can always say, if the artist is a good person, then that makes the work better. Or if the artist is a bad person, it makes the work worse. Sometimes it might make the work more intriguing, right? As in the, you know, gonna murder you baby case. It's like, was that a was that a warning? Like, should we have sought help at that point? Like, should I be worried about the guy whose concert I ditched in Lancaster with his songs about his ex-wife? Or it can make it hard to interpret the work of art in the same way, once you know certain facts about the artist, right? But yeah, so I mean, you can't, you can't mark it as irrelevant. I mean, the, the question in aesthetics is how do you take it up, right? Because people in aesthetics tend to resist the idea that it's just, it's just whatever it makes you feel, right? Because uh, that, that's no fun, right? We're, of course, I think we're, you know, constitutionally inclined to say, no, there are correct ways to interpret things and incorrect ways to interpret things. Um, but spelling that out is kind of hard, right? Um, and so one uh, one really influential paper um, by Kendall Walton called Categories of Art essentially says that evaluation of artworks specifically, you don't undertake that by just evaluating the inv- individual art. You first have to place it in a genre because the genre help or a category is the word he uses, but you have to place it within a category because the category tells you what to pay attention to, right? So if I say this this work is an oil painting, Right now I'm going to be attending to things like, you know, the brush strokes, the use of light and color and things like that. If I'm uh, attending to something as a sculpture, right, I'm going to be interpreting it um, with respect to its three dimensional form. Right. And so and then there are certain things that are irrelevant. Right. If a painting has a little bump of paint in the middle, we don't regard it, therefore, as a sculpture. Right. And say, like, wow, what a tiny little sculpture or what you say, like, either it's irrelevant. Right. Or maybe it's a flaw, and um, but none of these categories are things that uh, you can ju- you can completely carve out without knowledge of the art form, which I think is really the, the the main takeaway from what Walton's saying is that to be a good appreciator of art sometimes requires, or maybe always requires, but in some cases it's easier to get than others, some understanding of the art form. And things that might play into that are the artist's uh, intentions, maybe depending on the art form or what the artist has actually done. Uh, the only co- constraint that Walton really puts on it is that it, that it has to be visible in the artwork somehow. So reading a newspaper article about the artist, I think, and then interpreting something 
that isn't in the song, right? So, so you, you know, the guy painted an angel and it turns out that he did something bad. If it doesn't come through in the painting, it's not fair to evaluate the art that way. But you notice there's a lot of wiggle room there, especially if we're talking about something like a song where you're adopting a perspective or um, whether uh, something is meant as a piece of propaganda or as a critical reflection on something or, you know, what the artist might have been trying to do when they told this story or the, the time in which it was written, right? All of those things are fair game as long as they, you know, materially show up some way in the artwork. I wanted to ask you about what you, you and I agree is like one of the most compelling examples of art being influenced by what we know about the artist. And that's the Bill Cosby show. Mm-hmm. Bill Cosby's art. Mm-hmm. Man, there's nothing quite like it. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, it's in its own category. I remember years and years ago thinking that, wow, Lance Armstrong, that was a really bad fall from grace. <laughs> oh, that was nothing. Yeah, this is this this is uh you know, it's interesting. I was I zoomed into a friend's class who was teaching my book and one of the questions I got asked by the students which I thought was very very cute and very funny was like, "Why do you all care so much about Cosby?" And I said, "Because we were kids in the 80s." And that, you know, 80s and early 90s, um because for them, you know, all 18 and 19, they had no no big cultural memory of it. So I tried to give them a sense of like how big the Cosby show was, how groundbreaking it was, how Bill Cosby's comedy was pretty much everywhere. um, If you're right around my age and that, yeah, you can't think of a, a story where somebody's life completely overturns everything that they'd done artistically. I think in, in recent memory, the degree of the Um, contrast matters here. Yes. Like as you were saying in your book, like, when I heard about Louis C.K., I didn't think, oh, wow, I, he didn't seem like that kind of guy. <laughs> no, in fact, when you, when you hear about Louis C.K., you thought, uh, like my thought was like, was his comedy all this time just to get try to get me to agree that it was OK? Because he's such a creep in his comedy, but he's always kind of like a creep that's sort of kidding on the sly. And you thought like, well, like, were you taking like from the fact that we were laughing at your jokes, like so, kind of like an implicit sanction that we must all be creeps too, and that we would find this kind of thing acceptable? But you're you're completely right. It was completely like in character, right? In in a way for Louis C.K. and for Cosby, it's completely the opposite, right? One can only think what Cliff Huxtable would have done to such a guy, right? Um, I mean, it, it's like the only thing I can compare it to is it's. Imagine you found out, it turns out that Santa Claus was the Zodiac killer this whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly it. And I think for um, for me, uh, one of the things that uh, I was thinking about in the chapter in the book, it's the fourth chapter, and I'd written an earlier piece on it for Philosopher's Magazine. This is sort of like the, it's the director's cut of the magazine piece, is, is thinking about like why I cared so much. Because Obviously, as somebody who's inclined to write a book like this, and who spends most of the book arguing that there's no really overwhelming ethical obligation to give up the art of immoral artists. Why did Cosby hit me so hard? Right. Um, And is is it just nostalgia? Is it, you know, any number of possible explanations. But I think part of it is just the degree of the contrast that Cosby also invited. Right. So, I mean, if if you go into the, the history of the Cosby show, Right. And what he was trying to do with the comedy on the show. ta Coates, a few years ago, I guess about a decade ago now, had an article on Cosby as a political activist, as a specific kind of black conservative figure. Right. 
the sort that's, you know, basically uh, clean up your act, go to school, do well, succeed, right? And that was very, that his sensibility infuses the show, right? So, and it works because he was trying to do something new, which was to take a sitcom, right? And use it to, sh- to showcase sort of like a, a black aspirational family, right? You know, he's a doctor, he's married to a lawyer. Sometimes how they have, you know, five or six, I'd even lost track of how many Cosby kids there were because then they start having, you know, nieces and grandchildren come around and friends, but, you know, big, beautiful family. You know, he was very clear that anytime they would talk about colleges, they would mention the Ivy leagues and, you know, really impressive schools. And then the next one would be Howard, right. Or, you know, a historically black college to basically say, this is supposed to be, you know, an ideal. Like if you've looked at the artists who came onto the show and it's like, all right, like this family is obviously really well connected. And the sensibility of the show, though, is always that, you know, he's a good dad, right? He's a good dad who is going to steer his kids morally through the sort of, you know, trials that ordinary teenagers get into, whether it's not doing well in school, like with Theo or, you know, Vanessa and, you know, episode where she gets a zit and doesn't know what to do, you know, and is panicked about it or all of the, the things with the younger kids. And you have to believe that this is sincere, right? Part of his comedic persona was that he was a guy that knew what was what, and he was using this to tell you. And that's really hard to square with a guy who backstage was drugging people and sexually assaulting them. And yeah, it just, the contrast is too much. And I think it's actually a correct aesthetic reaction, right? Because my worry was initially, it's like, especially as somebody who doesn't normally have these strong reactions, like, look, you know, He's an actor portraying a role. He's inhabiting a persona. But I think something about the nature of comedy requires this aura of authenticity in a way that, uh, you know, if he had just been an actor, it probably wouldn't have. It would still be appalling. Right. But I don't think it would take a nuclear bomb to his legacy in exactly the same way. Yeah. And you make the point about how his character of Cliff Huxtable bled into just his his comedy and his jello commercials and all this other stuff he would do so he made it really clear that he wanted to sort of be seen as this kind of character oh yeah i mean he blurred the boundary right yeah. like when he when he sells the jello pudding pops he's in the cosby sweaters right and for uh those in the audience who are younger they're these big chunky kind of ugly dad sweaters that uh but he had a different one at pretty much every episode and they're always you know patterned and kind of over the top. But when he starts selling jello pudding pops or doing other appearances, he's in the Cosby sweater, right? It's why it's the Cosby sweater, not the Huxtable sweater, right? Because the persona completely blends together. That's what I mostly remember him from as a kid is the jello commercials. The Cosby show was mostly a, mostly over by the time I, I was paying attention. Ah, uh, you youngin, right? Yeah. Um, well, it might've been reruns, right? So yeah. One of the things I was trying to explain to, uh, you know, bewildered undergraduates, because their professor, uh, Brandon Polite, and I are basically the same age. So, you know, they're like, we don't get it. Why, like, two of you, like, we thought he was just a weird old guy. It's like, no, but you have to understand, like, the media ecosystem in the late 80s was different, too, right? You didn't have quite the variety in entertainment, unless you, you know, maybe you had cable if you were one of, like, the rich families. But not only was the Cosby show going to be on, you know, Thursday nights at seven, it was also going to be on syndication after school when you got home. Right. So I, I think I've seen every episode of the show. Um, when I wrote the book or actually the original paper, I wrote the scene where, uh, about the scene where he, uh, you know, Theo says he's just going to quit school and move out and get a job and they go back and forth with the monopoly money. 
I did that from memory. Um, I confirmed it that I was correct later by like, you know, I found the clip on YouTube and watched it through a very grainy thing. But I'm like, that, that one got burned into my brain somehow, as did the opening sequence. And I don't know why, right? <laughs> but probably because I saw it hundreds of times as a kid, if the TV was on in the background, right? In the, in the late afternoon. So, you know, when you have a media ecosystem that's like that small and that repetitive, I think that, you know, there's a, a way where it was really hard to escape Cosby now in a way that it's hard for me to judge now, right? There's so many different streaming services. You might be following different things uh, than, you know, your family or your friends. And, but that's also hard. For, I'm like, I'm old. I have small children. I have no time. I can probably tell you a lot about my little ponies, but like not what's going on anywhere else in the world. So that might be more an artifact of my specific situation rather than a giant change in the media ecosystem. But I think there's at least some evidence to support it that the Cosby show was more central than like whatever the equivalent would be now. There is no equivalent. I did want to push back on one thing that you said. I read this chapter earlier today and I, I was thinking about it. You said it's hard to square him being a rapist with him sincerely having these other values. But then I want to ask, well, why? I mean, what if it's just a fact about people that were often severely compartmentalized, fragmented? I think it's probably true that he really did espouse the values that he presents in Cliff Huxtable. I think that's who he yeah. wanted to be. Like but raping people isn't a craddock, right? Like, it's not like this is just a bad case of acrosia or something, right? I, I think I think what does it for me is that, so I get what you're saying, right? Like, we often have ideals that we don't live up to. I mean, obviously, anybody who, you know, you can find any story about a murderer or a rapist will have people in his life that say he was nice to puppies and, you know, cared about the elderly and all sorts of things. So yeah, sure. People are complex. I guess what I, I, when I was writing the line, what I was thinking about was that I feel like you could imagine Huxtable sitting him down, right. And very giving, giving him a really good argument as to like why you shouldn't drug people. Right. And you know, the, the person whose sensibility was enough to like articulate that and express like what a good life would be right because you know if you followed cosby's parenting advice you'd probably do pretty okay right like as if you were tried to model your life on cliff huxtable you'd probably do all right and then it never seemed to like close the loop right or maybe it did and like i i i just find it mind-blowing right this isn't like you know like finding the financial advisor is bad with money on in their personal life right that's like that's that's you know or that you failed to live up to your ideals right or the the parenting expert, you know, struggles with their own children. This just seems so, so contrary to it that you're kind of like, at any point when you were writing the script, did you think that maybe the the drugs you had in the, uh, you know, in the waiting area behind backstage was like a bad idea? How did this not like, yeah, I, I don't know. My mind is just blown. One thought is the fact that he was capable, he was genuinely capable of moral judgment. There are some people who are serial rapists and serial murderers like Ted Bundy, like genuine psychopaths, where it's a matter of, of controversy whether such people actually comprehend morality at all. And if they don't, then it seems arguable that they're not blameworthy. But Cosby truly, clearly was capable of moral judgment and even better than average moral judgment, it seems. And so that, in, at one level, adds to his culpability. I think that's one of the things that's so repulsive yeah. about the case. However, however, 
it's not just he failed to live up to his ideals, but um, people are capable radical compartmentalization. So I'm one extreme. Another extreme example is yeah. is in the book Crime and Punishment, where Raskolnikov he performs this incredibly self-sacrificial act. I think it's giving away a bunch of money um, to a family who needs it. And then he also commits a double homicide. These are parts of the same personality. His act of charity wasn't any less sincere because he was also a double murderer or somebody who would go on to do that. So I, I guess I think that human beings can be deeply, deeply divided in their moral qualities. And that he was probably a case of that. And so I think he probably really did sincerely endorse his values and was somehow unable to connect the two. Or I think maybe what happened was he, he, the, the first time he did this, uh, he, he drugged a woman and raped her. He started developing habits of mind to direct his mind away from that because he knew it was wrong. He knew it was wrong. And he developed a, a kind of almost split personality. I, I mean, that I'm, this is armchair psychologizing. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's really hard, right? I mean, I think one thing that uh, is strange or not, not strange, but maybe noteworthy, well, it makes it different from the Raskolnikov case, right? Because the crime and punishment case, he gives away money He's otherwise a very sensitive soul, right? I, I have a hard time not reading him as a philosophy grad student all the time. <laughs> it's like, I feel like I went to college with you people, um, except that no, none of them were uh, axe murderers, hopefully. Um, <laughs> uh, but Cosby's crimes were like repetitive, right? He's a serial rapist. It's over his 40 year career, like starting, like the earliest allegations are back when he's uh, on I Spy and it continues this whole thing so you know it's, it's only a handful of people who have brought the case and i think maybe only one or two that went to trial i don't i don't recall uh offhand but this was like a consistent pattern so you know whether it's a a, a bifurcation or a rationalization right that this was just a bit of fun or something like that right it's got to be a weird environment but for me i just feel like at some point what didn't happen right if you think he's sincere, right? And I, I think he probably was, right? Because this wasn't one of the things that it wasn't just a character, right? If he had just played Cliff Huxtable, hadn't had the pudding pop thing, but also not like the tradition of activism. A lot of what Cosby did in his later years was go around essentially to uh, black churches and talk to young men about, you know, how to be good fathers, how to get ahead in the world, how to like, you know, straighten up and fly right, like kind of like the Cliff Huxtable would talk to Theo. And this was part of his, his activism, part of like what he did is basically a wealthy actor who'd made it and was sort of in the sunset of his life was to, you know, try to have foundations to actually improve the lives of these young men. And at some point, I'm kind of like, so why didn't you close the, like, this was like other people, like you could be like, oh, they're just a dumb, you know, self-absorbed actor who didn't, didn't think things through enough or that they, rationalized it to themselves. I'm like, clearly you were able to see through rationalizations everywhere else. That was kind of your thing, right? You were telling people to, you know, straighten up, fly right, take care of your kids, stay in school, you know, avoid the drugs, the whole thing, even getting into trouble with it with some of his activism. Can you turn the reflective gaze back on yourself a tiny bit? And like, why, why didn't that happen? Right. You know, or 
had it stopped at some point, right? Does it? Um, I don't recall that it is like when he's, uh, you know, kind of essentially retired from acting and is now just an activist. And maybe this is like that was bracketed in like my crazy actor days in a past, the past. But not even that still. because he 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 never owned up to it. He kept lying about it. It's just such a it's such a singularly disturbing case. Yeah, really nothing like, like it. Yeah, but but does this make it worse? Art it makes it. For me, I I cannot unsee that. I can't. Yeah, that's the problem, right? Cliff Huxtable yeah. and not think serial rapist. And even if it's a divided personality sort of thing, you're not thinking of Cliff Huxtable as a divided Raskolnikov personality. Like the show, it doesn't work that way. No, um, no. But does it? Is it an aesthetic flaw in his art? So yeah. So this is the question, right? Um, and there's there's theories according to which it is. And I think that's kind of where I come down on it is that part of, and this, this is why I spend some time talking about the, the nature specifically of comedy and the persona. Right. And I think that in order for his jokes to work, they have to be believed as sincere and not just as like the actor has to be good. Right. But in that, you know, again, this is, this is Cosby's, you know, activism and political sensibility really infuses the entire show. And if you get the sense that that's just a joke, right, or that's it's just an act, the the show doesn't work as well. Question I take up in the chapter is like, am I making some sort of cognitive mistake? Like when I think that, you know, George Clooney is a real doctor because he played one on ER in the early 90s. But here I don't think it is, right? What often, um, how philosophers have often talked about the relationship between ethics and aesthetics. Um, like I said earlier, we're the sort of people who say like, what's the ethical problem with this artwork? And you're like, well, under what circumstances is it an aesthetic flaw is the interesting question. But one of the analyses that's become fairly prominent of this is that an ethical flaw amounts to an aesthetic flaw when it prevents the consumer of the art from adopting the attitudes that the artwork prescribes for them, right? So if you're supposed to get on board with Cliff Huxtable being a warm, understanding, perfect, you know, America's dad, and you can't do that because the because in order to do that required you to have like a belief that the actor was sincere, right? That the comedian was here, that the comedy was coming from a place of insight and sincerity, which I think a lot of comedy requires, like the idea that like this is an actual observation that I've had, even if it's uh, even if there's a persona or a shtick or a particular point of view. And when you know that whatever was going on with Cosby it makes it harder to view that as sincere, right? Or at least makes you question it, right? Once you start questioning whether whether this is meant as sincere comedy, right? It just doesn't work anymore, right? Now, like anytime, anytime I've tried to watch it or, I mean, my parents had his uh, comedy recordings on vinyl, right? So it's not for me, it's not just the, the Cosby show, but that like in the sort of limited ecosystem of things that were acceptable entertainment to my extremely conservative parents, it's like Star Trek and the Cosby show and like a handful of other things. <laughs> and, but uh, Cosby's comedy was one of them. So all of his things about, you know, driving in San Francisco and the Noah's Ark sketch and uh, all the stuff about like being a kid growing up and, you know, you have a, a whole ecosystem where this guy presents himself as, a responsible, sincere, incisive critic of the American family. And then you're kind of like, but qualudes, how does that fit in? Right. Um, and oh, yeah. for me, it's just, it's just kind of done. Right. Yeah. I'm, 
And I remember actually, I was at a bookstore in Boulder and there are these, there's like the for sale box. And then there's the, okay, we just want to get rid of this 25 cents. And there was his fatherhood with a 25 cents mark. And I remember thinking, I remember thinking, you're probably not going to get that quarter. Like, I, no, no, I bought that book for my dad. Like that was a Father's Day gift for me and my sisters when I, I must have been like 10 or 11. Uh, don't quote me on the exact age, but like we got it for, for my dad because we liked the show. And I've read the fatherhood book because I was the kind of kid that read anything that was on the bookshelves. So I, you know, and yeah, to think like, wow, 25 cents in a, in a book sale and you're probably not going to get it because like the 25 cents is not worth the shame of picking up that book and thinking like, this is going to be a reliable guide to how to be a good dad, you know? <laughs> or maybe I should have thought about picking it up for 25 cents and leaving it in the grad lounge as a, as a joke. Oh, that would be such a, that would be a great troll. That would, really. that absolutely would. Um, and, you know, not that I would ever suspect you of such a thing <laughs> on, on social media. Never, never. But you know, there's something weird about this. And I, I'm thinking through the, the comedy stuff a little bit more um, in light of uh, the Chappelle controversies recently. And I don't know if I, I stand by my fourth chapter. It's really well written and everybody should enjoy it. But I, I worry a little bit that the, the connection between the artist, Louis C.K., the bit about Louis C.K. makes this point a little bit too, but now I've been thinking more about it, that it's a problem when the artist directly contradicts what they're doing, especially in comedy, right? If you can't really buy the persona. But it's also, I think, sometimes a problem in the Louis C.K. case where it's just where what they've done that's wrong, like amplifies what their comedy was about, right? So Louis C.K. is almost the counterexample to the kind of thing that I'm considering. That I w- My analysis of Cosby works for Cosby, but I'm, I'm worried about how to extend it. Because the problem with Louis C.K. is that you know, it turns out he was kind of a creepy, I don't even know what to describe what he did. It's kind of like, like sexual harassment doesn't seem like the right word, but like, there's not a term for not knowing the norms that like require to keep your pants on when talking to colleagues, because that's just so bizarre, right? But whatever it is, it seems like his comedy, there's a read of it where it's sort of like, he's always kidding on the sly, like, I'm a creep, we're all creeps. You understand the, the the creepiness, and that's part of what makes it funny. But now it's kind of like, are you using our laughter, as I said earlier, kind of like exonerate yourself, right? Like everybody found this kind of thing funny, so I must what I'm doing it must not be that bad. What's interesting about it is that in his attempted comeback right now, which seems to be going like reasonably well, he's not quite to the level of stardom that he was before, but he's still doing better than the vast majority of people who are, will try to be comedians. He's just doubling down on the the creepiness, right? Like he's just leaning into it. Um, he's not trying to backtrack and like, you know, apologize or say he's sorry. It's kind of like, well, you know, there's a big enough audience that enjoys the the creepy, <laughs> the creepiness or the shock jock idea of it. And there's no, um, there's no calling him back, but that's a case where he's basically just where the comedy and the persona are kind of amplifying each other maybe. And I'm really not sure what to think about that because I, I find it really hard to get back into his stuff um, because I feel like I'm being made fun of, right. For, or like I'm, I'm, compl- I'm weirdly complicit in his bizarre, not knowing how to keep your pants on in the office while talking to colleagues misbehavior. And yeah, I don't, I don't quite know uh, what to, what to think about that. 
Yeah, in the case of Cosby, it's like a, almost a performative contradiction. And that actually yeah, makes yeah. it worse because if you understand that art in its context, presenting this ideal of the black family to white Americans is what he's up to. Mm-hmm. And now it almost seems like he just showed, he just exposed that whole thing as a big fraud, as a big joke uh, in like the worst possible way. With Louis C.K., it's like, I honestly was never a big fan of his. I admired it sort of at a cold distance because I thought yeah. he was clever and, you know, he was talented, but I could never really get into it because he's so misanthropic. Um, he's he's so, mm-hmm. you know, he, he had all these jokes about, about I eat meat and it's wrong and I don't care that it's wrong. And I do all these things that are wrong and I don't care that they're wrong. Right. And people were laughing at that. And I, I mean, I guess this might be a plausible case of immoral art based on the the sort of quasi definition I gave earlier that it's an invitation to share immoral attitudes. And the fact that that carries over into real life just yeah. to vindicate that critique. I would think. Yeah, I, I, I feel I feel like the Louis C.K. stuff worked better when you assumed, you know, maybe implicitly while you were laughing that it was an exaggeration of some kind. Right. Like like when somebody's like, yep, I did that thing and I'm not apologizing. And it's like a relatively, you know, minor thing. Like it would be also I, I mean, there's also the case, too, like where somebody plays a character. Um, I think it's more worrisome for actors like they worry about getting typecast as a bad guy, you know, when they really spend the rest of their time like donating to charity and, you know, cuddling puppies and things like, you know, really innocuous things. And I think I had always thought that, you know, that that Louis C.K.'s act was like intentionally over the top. And like so what made it funny was, you know, justifying like I did this and I'm not sorry. Right. But also that like didn't really do it, right? <laughs> that it was sort of maybe a little sorry or maybe finding the funniness in it. But then when it's just kind of like, nope, no, nope, no, nope, that's exactly what it was. Wow, he was telling us exactly what it was the whole time. Wow. Now that's weird, right? And makes it harder, harder to laugh at. But some people still do, right? I mean, this this is more of the and we're not talking about this as much today, but like one of the risks of uh, canceling artists is that there's really no incentive for them not to double down, right? And I think we're seeing this play out exactly with Chappelle right now where it's kind of like, you know, can we, can we shame him into, you know, giving up uh, transphobic jokes? And it's like, nope, because the audience that likes them is bigger than the audience that uh, doesn't. And the more you talk about it, the more that audience just goes for it. Right. So there's a, like a meta, I don't want to say meta ethical because you're actually a meta ethicist, um, but meta, meta in like the, you know, casual sense of meta in a casual sense yeah. of meta um there's a meta ethical question about um if, if i think the right thing to do is not to you know indulge in this guy's comedy anymore but uh the fact that i make a show of it or try to get other people to join in with me actually makes the problem worse like what's the correct ethical ethical attitude to take towards Chappelle right now. I, I think the correct aesthetic attitude actually is uh, is sadness because his earlier stuff on the Chappelle show was so much funnier, at least I think. I feel like his past two specials for me have been very, uh, they've been defensive in a way, right? Because he's very concerned about what he's calling the celebrity hunting season, right? The, the cancel culture type stuff, but it's not as funny. And defensiveness isn't funny and defensiveness isn't sympathetic. And and I'm kind of like, I miss the guy whose insight about, 
you know, had, had a gift for insight about race relations in the U.S. and was funny about it, right? The sketch where, you know, the guy gets arrested in his own house and the cops are like, yeah, I saw this once. And you know, when I was a rookie, guy broke in and put up pictures of his family all over the walls, right? And you just realize, like, that's one of the funniest bits I've ever heard. And that's nowhere in these later specials because the current audience is a little easier to satisfy, I guess. I don't know. Maybe my maybe my standards are too high, or but there's certainly no... Well, the, I, I don't know. I yeah. I think there's always an element of comedy that it's got you gotta laugh at what you're not supposed to laugh at. Sure, sure. I think I think of uh, you know, especially I mean, comedy's all always playing a little bit with the edge, right? Because uh, part of what makes comedy funny, right, is that it's clever and transgressive at the same time, right? The idea that you're saying what shouldn't be said. Um, or you're saying what everybody's thinking, but nobody else is brave enough to say, or nobody else is, you know, artistic enough to say in the way that will make people laugh. So I think a lot of it, it's kind of like a degree of difficulty, right? A- adding a degree of difficulty. If you want to make a joke about somebody powerful who's well placed, that's pretty easy to do, right? Because uh, you know, it's going to be it's going to be really hard for it to be interpreted as mean, right? Like. If somebody does an impression of the president, right? It's really hard to be like, oh, that's me. It's like, that's the most powerful guy in the world. He has a lot of nuclear bombs. Like, really, you're allowed to make fun of him, right? You know, you don't worry about hurting Joe Biden's feelings by, uh, you know, doing impressions of him. But you might think that when it's a little more complicated, right? And like what some of the criticism of, of Chappelle has been is that he's not as attuned here to, which is weird, right? Because given his obvious comedic genius, right? That he's not attuned to, the nuances of how some of his stuff is coming across that it, it's going to be harder to make a good joke about something that's you know morally vicious or towards a group that's marginalized. And though it's like, you can joke about it, but you better be funny, right? Like a failed joke that looks like it harms people is a lot worse than a joke that, you know, might, you know, hurt the president's feelings a little bit. I think we probably would, would disagree on the substance a lot of of the Chappelle stuff, like like what's punching up, what's punching down. I think a lot of the taboos he's he's violating, I mean, are pretty strong taboos, and I think people are people afraid to to joke about the, the trans movement, you know. Yeah, and I. I don't I think there's a humorlessness of the whole trans movement that that isn't really healthy. And I think I I recall this after the Charlie Hebdo attacks Mm -hmm. in 2015, where I think it was one of the survivors said, I think it's a form of respect that we joke about you like we joke about everybody else. It's a way of saying, hey, you're part of, of the community. But like. Yeah, if it's the kind humor of humor certainly like, has that function, right? Yeah, like don't joke. If about I tease it. you, yeah, I'm pre- like if I tease you about something, right? Yeah. Like I tease you about your tarnation thing, right? Yeah. Um, the fact that I'm teasing you is showing like a certain kind of respect. One, I understand that like we can take the joke that as of you know a former resident of the Inner Mountain West and a current one that I uh, you know get why you're using the phrase. And if I didn't say anything, right? Um, you couldn't really take anything from that. But the fact that I am making the joke suggests like, hey, you know, we're equals, we're fun. It's a, you know, a measure of a weird kind of, you know, philosophy friendship or something like that. And at um, the same time, if there's one thing you don't joke about, you know, right. that's almost kind of an insult. Like, 
Like, if like some, you can't handle it, right? Like if some kid or, was, was actually mentally disabled, you wouldn't joke about that, you know? At least you'd have to be very careful yeah. about yeah, it. Yeah, I think, I mean, humor is complicated, right? Like, uh, And, you know, it's not even just punching up, punching down, because sometimes humor doesn't have to be even punching, right? It can just be poking or, or ripping, right? It doesn't necessarily, I mean, punching up always is usually funny, right? Punching down usually isn't, but you might be rejecting that there's a, there's a down or an up, or maybe it's a punching sideways, right? In this case. So I think like, this is a question about like, uh, what's causing the problem, right? So the, the Charlie Hebdo case, they're saying like, look, we feel comfortable mocking the crazier elements of uh, jihadism because we welcome people into our society and we make, we are a satirical magazine. We make fun of everything. Right. And if we didn't do that, you would take that as a sign that we're not here. But I think a good response might be that, well, you know, we don't really feel <laughs> like we're part of the, the society yet. And we're not sure everybody's laughing at the same joke. Right. So I, I'm not sure which has to come first. Do you have the acceptance first and then it's okay to joke about or do you, or can the joking like drive the the acceptance does that make sense i want to ask you about this about another case yeah so do you know the cure song killing an arab i don't it was their first hit and it's it's very clearly a reference to the stranger by camus it even includes the words i am the stranger um, right so it was really controversial for a long time. And of course, unsurprisingly, some racist idiots took it up. You know, right. you wouldn't expect white supremacists to be up on their Camus necessarily. <laughs> and so, and they weren't. And so, um, <laughs> sorry, that's just, yeah, that's great. They, they stopped performing it for a while. And, um, but then in 2017, they, they had a, concert somewhere in, in the UK, I forget where, and they decided, screw it, you know, and they played it again. And that one is is an interesting case because it certainly, there is an, an immoral interpretation of it. Uh -huh. You might think they might be blameworthy for writing a song that could so easily be misinterpreted, but it also raises this question. If the lead singer of The Cure, I forget his name, came out and said, Ha ha, I was a white supremacist this whole time. Right. Yeah. Uh, does that change the quality of the song? Does that change the morality? Oh, good. Of the so this is a really good question that ties into um, like a bigger question about what, what authors of artworks retain once the artwork is out in the wild, right? And it's hard... Uh, to make like a general rule on this. So I, I actually, while you've been talking, I just looked up the lyrics for killing an Arab because I like to do things like this. Um, and it's pretty much just a, it's like a lyrical version of the scene in the stranger where yeah. um, the main character kills the Arab. Okay. So, but it is in the first person, right? And, you know, it's a lot of, I'm alive, I'm dead, I'm the stranger killing an Arab, I can turn and walk away, or I can fire the gun staring at the sky, whichever I choose, it amounts to the same, absolutely nothing. I think you'd see a debate about it, right? I think you might say that to understand the song properly in the first place means you, you have to have read the book, right, in 11th grade English class, and uh, you have to understand that 
what the whole point of the story is to understand like, you know, the, the line that whatever I do, it doesn't matter. Right. And then for him to say that, Oh, I, I actually meant this as a white supremacist and, you know, I'm actually in favor of killing Arabs. I think you would see um, because of the nature of the song is where the lyrics are sort of understandable only if you've read the book anyway, that could very easily become the dominant interpretation because you would say like the author has a say over it, but there's other cases where it's not really as clear. So I guess this is about 15 years ago now where JK Rowling was being criticized for not including uh, gay characters in the Harry Potter universe. And, and there was sort was of Dumbledore gay after the fact, right? retroactively, right? Which was like, no, you didn't though. Right. And <laughs> like you can't, and at least I had the very strong intuition. Other people likely you can't just like declare a character to be representative by fiat, right? The thing would, the, the proper thing to say probably would have been something along the lines of that either she could, you know, apologize and say it was an omission. I should have had better representation, or she could have appealed to the genre of this sort of like buildings roman of a young man going off in an adventure where romance is really an afterthought. You could have appealed to the claim that when you're writing stories about uh, essentially high school students at an elite British boarding academy, you don't typically bring up the romantic lives of the teachers. That's often not something that's really on board. I mean, and you could push back on that in various ways, right? But the, the, the claim to me that like, you could just declare it and be like, oh, well, it was he was really uh, gay all along. So it was represented by one of the most beloved characters in the series. To me, this seemed like kind of cheap, right? So there's, I think, a limit to what an author of a work can do. It might depend a little on um, the nature of the work, too. And one thing that would, uh, one thing that's interesting about songs, I think, aside from like the persona, as we've talked a little bit about it, like the, the singer inhabiting the protagonist role, right? Um, is that they're performed multiple times, right? It's not like J.K. Rowling writes the book every time somebody reads it. And so you could think that like, oh, like reaffirming this song by singing it, or like maybe there'd be a difference between how we'd view the performances before and after, you know, his announcement that he's a, a white supremacist in, the, in this hypothetical. Um, like continuing to sing the song now sounds different because of what we know. I, like, I think it would be fair to bring that in, but it's also not universally the case, right? You can't, authors sometimes don't have control over how how their works are taken up and that you know again the waltonian categories where whatever changes has to be visible somehow in the artwork right i think is useful here you know there's no sign really in the books like even if you squint that dumbledore is coded as uh uh gay i mean he has a friendship with another man okay um <laughs> Maybe you can read into that and like, maybe you can retcon it and you can certainly write fan fiction about whatever you want. Right. But I think that, you know, to me, at least it felt like a cheap attempt too late to try to uh, say that, hey, no, I had more representation. But with something like, you know, the, the song Killing an Arab, looking at the lyrics here, well, it really does say I am killing an Arab and <laughs> I point my gun at the sky and I look in his eyes and I shoot him. And giving that a, a white supremacist background isn't is nearly as much of a stretch, right? So you could say, you could also defend it though. You could say, look, none of the lyrics really celebrate it exactly, right? Staring at the sky, staring at the sun, whichever I choose, it amounts to the same, absolutely nothing. I'm alive, I'm dead, I'm the stranger killing an Arab, right? It, does it strike you differently than the um, Sweet Blood Call? Uh, I'd have to listen to it. 
feel bad that I don't know the song. Um, because what, what, why I found Sweet Blood Call so interesting was a lot of the contrast, right, between the absolute ugliness of the lyrics and the, the melodic line, which is, you know, was very well performed, right, and very, very pretty. And so that's, that's what made the song really have a lot of appeal was the contrast, right? Um, I think it would be very different, though, like listening to the song knowing hypothetically that he had murdered somebody right in this way yeah. or that he was abusive in this way yeah um but again like people are fascinated by weird stuff right it might just make it more real right more authentic man that like he's really like writing about it but i i would find it uh, i think a lot harder to appreciate it aesthetically if i believed it were an account of real domestic violence right because it would just kind of it would interfere it would overrun i think i think i've got to Call quits. It's pretty late here in Wuhan. It's pretty late here. We didn't get to talk about what makes evil so much fun, though. Um, no. And that was the one question I really wanted oh, to talk no. about. It's, uh, so, yeah, some other time. We'll get to it. Some other time. You you look like you're going to fall asleep here. But it's been, yeah, because I, wow, three hours. Okay, well, you have enough to make an hour-long podcast, I'm sure, somewhere in here. It'll be longer than that. But yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. So, awesome. All right. Thank you, Spencer. Well, thank you. Um, and uh, this has been this has been a treat. Good. I'm glad you thought so. Um, I like talking philosophy. Me too.